Amen. I got shivers during All Creatures of Our God and King. That was beautiful. Yeah. And it's good to be together. It's good to unite our voices. It's good to worship. It's good to see lots of people out today. And together, we make a joyful noise to the Lord. So my name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And I want to say welcome. I have my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning. If you're new here today or you've been visiting with us for a few weeks, um, let us know how we can help, make you feel comfortable and welcome you. So today we're finishing our series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 15, but the letter actually goes on. Chapter 16 is the final chapter. So let me encourage you this week and give you some homework off the top to read chapter 15 in its entirety. There are 58 verses. I'm not going to be reading the whole thing this morning more selections from it, and then go on and read chapter 16 as well, because chapter 16 has a lot of good stuff in it. But we've got our plate full this morning with chapter 15, which is one of the most significant chapters in the whole Bible. In fact, you could spend a couple of months worth of Sundays just on this chapter. In chapter 15, Paul says essentially this. He says that if Jesus was like the founders of all the other world religions, or if he was like any other great and famous person. In other words, if Jesus had died and stayed dead, then being a Christian would mean trying hard to follow the teachings of Jesus. But Paul says Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is unique. Jesus is not someone who died and stayed dead. Jesus is alive, and that changes everything. Because when you believe in him, you don't just get his teaching. You get Jesus. You get him literally. He comes to you. He enters your life. He is with you. So the doctrine of the resurrection isn't just something we agree to, that we assent to. Paul is saying that the resurrection means that the Christian life is something totally different. It's a complete transformation. It's a whole new order of being. And he wants to take the low expectations we sometimes have of our faith and of God and explode them. So once again, this week, Paul is writing to answer questions the Corinthians have asked or which he's heard reports that they've raised. In verse 12, he says, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And that's really what chapter 15 is all about answering that question. Paul wants to show the Corinthians that belief in our bodily resurrection is central to Christianity, not just in the resurrection of Jesus, but that all of us will be resurrected in our bodies. It's the very foundation of Christian hope is what he wants to convey to us. So it appears that some people in Corinth were denying the physical resurrection of Jesus, perhaps, and certainly of the rest of us. They've been influenced by the views of Greek philosophers, by the culture around them that said we are made up of body and soul, and our bodies are bad or lesser, and our souls are the important part, the good part. So when your body dies, your good soul leaves this old piece of trash, I'm talking about myself here, leaves your body behind and goes up to heaven. That's how it works. Well, I wonder if our culture doesn't have similar 
impulses today. So my family and I, we went for a walk on Friday down to City Hall, and we smelled a lot of pot on the way. Why do people do drugs? For lots of reasons, but one of the primary reasons, I think, is for an out-of-body experience, to escape the drudgery of our lives. We want to get away from our ordinary life. It's the same reason people go on trips, eat at restaurants, work out, or even buy fancy coffee at Starbucks. I have a friend who knows a lot about Starbucks, and she says, it's, your experience at Starbucks is all built around a little taste of heaven. They want to transport you into an ecstatic place with your $12 glass of coffee. <laughs> so if you're a religious person, maybe you think of heaven as where your spirit flies off to when you die. Or a more popular stereotype is that heaven is a place where people sit on clouds, strumming on harps, and one assumes end up bored out of their skulls, unless you like that kind of thing. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus came to redeem the physical body and to usher in God's new kingdom on earth, a tangible physical kingdom that's actually similar to this one, just much more glorious and without the curse of sin and brokenness. But first, Paul tells us very clearly that the resurrection really happened in history. Allison read in our call to worship that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised on the third day. And then he appeared to a lot of different people. So Paul points to the evidence first. And we looked at those verses in depth back uh, in April on Easter Sunday. And if you're interested in that, some of the evidence, you could listen to that uh, podcast or watch it on YouTube. One theologian sums up this point in the early part of the chapter, I think, really, really well. He says, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. That's quite the understatement. Thank you. And second, if you believe it happened, you would have to change the way you live. So it may be unusual, miraculous, clearly, but that does not mean it didn't happen. Paul says it absolutely did happen, that it changed his life. That's how we started this whole series, by looking at the story of Saul's conversion to being a believer in Jesus, to being Paul. He went from persecuting Christians to planting churches, and he refers to that here. And so Paul says the historical truth of the resurrection is the foundation of just about everything in the Christian life. In verse 3, he says, the truth of the resurrection is of first importance. And that means there are other genuinely important things too, but only this is of the utmost importance. This is everything. Without this, we have nothing. And he's very honest about that in this chapter. If you read it on your own, you might find that striking, just how far he goes. So throughout this series, we've seen a principle at work. And I hope it's a principle we've taken away that we know this now. In the essentials of the Christian life, we have unity. We seek unity. In the non-essentials, and we're always working those out, guided by the Holy Spirit based on God's word, in the community of the church, in the non-essentials, we have diversity. And in all things, we practice charity or kindness towards one another. Imagine how different the world would be if we could live up to that. So Paul makes... Paul ends his letter here 
in chapter 15 and 16 by making the point that the resurrection is one of these absolute essentials. It can never drift into a non-essential. So the chapter starts with the history of the resurrection, but we're going to focus on three points. First of all, the victory of the resurrection. Secondly, the promise of the resurrection. And third, the implications of the resurrection. So it's victory, death is defeated. It's promise, our bodies will be made new in the image of Jesus. It's implications that our faith is not just spiritual. So first of all, the victory of the resurrection. Paul writes, Then the end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. So death is a consequence of sin. And the power of sin is the law. Because we can never live up to the law. The law is true, but we are trapped without God's grace. But thanks be to God, he has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's face it, death is powerful. And so how can Paul have the audacity to say, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? That's kind of old-fashioned language. Here's a more modern translation of what Paul's saying there. One more time, just for fun. <laughs> So soothing to the soul. He's ridiculing death. I mean, that noise that a child might make mocking their sibling, it's not a reasoned defense of anything. But it gets right at the way Paul says we should treat death that we should taunt death, that we have nothing to fear from death. And the reason Paul can laugh, the reason a Christian can laugh, is because of the gospel. Jesus has dealt with all our sin. Jesus has fulfilled it. He has taken our flaws, our shortcomings. He has clothed us in righteousness. We are made imperishable. And so Paul goes on to map out how Jesus' victory over death has changed things. In verse 36, he uses a seed analogy to describe the resurrection life. I love this. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And so Paul's saying that the resurrection life starts with who we are now, just as a seed is made out of the same stuff as the full-grown plant. But the full-grown thing, the resurrection body we will one day have, is so much more complex and awesome. Think of a watermelon seed, right? Its seed and the watermelon are made of the same stuff. But the watermelon is so much more complex and rich and colorful and big. The seed is just a small little black teardrop. So what does that mean for us? Well, when we realize that Jesus has taken away our sin and that death has no power over us, 
then when I die, it's like I'm planted like a seed. Paul gives us these analogies because this is so hard to wrap our heads around, right? And I come up like some beautiful watermelon. Or if you'd rather not be a watermelon, <laughs> like some gorgeous flower. I like the watermelon because it's so big and it's fruit. And I like watermelon a lot. <laughs> Maybe you want to be a gorgeous flower. That's fine with me. What can death do to you if sin has been dealt with? And if you know that, if you've trusted in that, well then, here's another analogy, one of my own. Then death becomes the dark door into the banquet hall. And you come up to this dark door, and it's terrible. Let's not pretend otherwise. It creaks, it groans, but you can hear laughter on the other side. And you can see light coming through the cracks in the door. And so what do you do as you face death, as you stand with that door before you? Well, you grab hold of the doorknob, and you pull it open, and suddenly you're inside. That's all you need to do. The world around us says that you don't have to be afraid of death because it's natural. The world is in complete denial about death. But you know death is not natural. Christianity says death is your enemy. But you don't have to be afraid of death because it is defeated. You can laugh in its face. And so we come to the promise of the resurrection. Where does the victory take us? Well, there's even more than the victory over death to Christian hope. Maybe you're thinking that the victory sounds like enough, but it's not. Paul goes on and says, not only do we know death is defeated, but we are going to be resurrected like our Lord. Now, if Paul had stopped at victory, you might think that Christian hope is when you fly off to heaven. But no, Paul says, my joy goes beyond that, and my hope goes beyond that. Because the Bible tells me just as Christ was raised from the dead, so I am going to be raised from the dead also. I'm not just going to live forever in some kind of spiritual state. I am going to get a new body. Now, why does that matter? Well, because Christians have misunderstood eternal life and heaven as purely spiritual. But the Bible says that God invented the spiritual and the physical, and they have both been crushed under the weight of sin, and both are going to be redeemed. And God does not consider the spiritual to be more important than the physical. You were created body and soul by God, and you are going to be redeemed body and soul by God. That might sound weird, but it actually makes good sense if you think about it. Think about how you're struggling right now in your life. Whatever circumstances are challenging you today. It's not just because of your soul or your spirit. Yes, your soul is full of anxiety. You are experiencing anger and discouragement. But your body is also full of brokenness. If it hasn't started, you will feel it eventually. Your body was not meant to be diseased. We have people in our church community who are living with that right now, who are fighting that. Your body was not meant to be frail. It was not meant to be the burden that it eventually becomes for every one of us. It wasn't meant to be that, like that. I'm not meant to wear these eyeglasses. Tom Bolton and I were talking a few days ago about the first time 
I realized I no longer had 20-20 vision. I used to be very proud of my vision. But we were out in the community room back when we used to have coffee after services. Remember that? Those days are coming back. And I was trying to read something, and I, I did this. And, and Tom said, with remarkable pastoral sensitivity, he said, aha! <laughs> he, he didn't say, you're dying. But he did say, that's the start of it. And so... Thanks, Tom. <laughs> now I got these things. This morning I wasn't wearing it, and I, I, instead of putting gel in my hair, I almost put something called exfoliant in my hair. Is that, <laughs> would, would that have been bad? I don't know. So we're not meant to be decaying. We're not meant to be decrepit. Not all of us are, but we're all on the way there. It would be strange if God had sent his son into the world to deal with the misery and pain of your life and of my life and only ended up dealing with half of it. Absolutely not. He doesn't just deal with half of it, the spiritual half. And so we have this incredible promise in verses 42 to 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Here's how that happens. Back to the seed. The flower is in the seed, right? But death is what brings it into bloom through the power that was in the seed. If you're a Christian, this is what the Bible says about this transformation. In Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you believed? Have you given yourself to him? Do you trust him in this? No one's saying it's easy, but go to him and ask for more faith. If you believe in him, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has come into you. Isn't that incredible? The Holy Spirit is here not only to help you with your guilt, to enable you to receive grace and forgiveness. We talk about that a lot on Sunday mornings. He is here for that. The spirit of the resurrected Christ is not here just to help you with your fears. He's here for that too. The Spirit is not here to help you overcome your bad habits and change your character, though he is here for that. But the Spirit is also not just here to save your soul. He is here to eventually give you a completely new and glorious body. So praise God for this fact that Christianity is the only religion that talks about a future glory in terms of the physical and the individual. The Christian hope is not some nirvana we inhabit as disembodied spirits. We don't all go back into the sea like little drops of water. Paul talks about how we will keep our individuality. Look at the risen Christ after he was raised from the dead. He ate a fish. Why include that detail? That's crazy. He ate a fish. Why tell us that? 
Because in the kingdom of God, all of us will eat. Fish, I guess? Other stuff? I don't know. In the kingdom of God, you will love, you will eat, you will drink, you will embrace others. I've just started hugging people again. I'm, I'm a bit of a hugger, but the pandemic really ruins that. And uh, I was at a presbytery meeting recently, and someone hugged me, and it was... Um, I didn't know what to do. It was shocking, actually. <laughs> but in heaven, even if you're not a hugger at all, there will be embraces all over the place. We will be hugging. What would a future be like without hugs when we are reunited with our loved ones? We will walk, it says, in the kingdom of God. We're not going to float above it. We will walk over it with our feet, our glorified feet. You will march in the kingdom of God. You will eat and drink with the Son of Man, and you will know each other. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, the disciples did not recognize Jesus when he first showed up the risen Jesus. And then suddenly they realized who he was. And so, in a similar way, we are going to be running up to each other, I imagine, and grabbing each other and saying, look at how magnificent you are. On earth, every so often, or not so often, I saw glimpses of this. In your best moments, I saw flashes of this. But look at you now. That is the only kind of future glory, as you put your trust in it, that will fill you with hope and will sustain you. A future without hugs? A future without food? I don't think so. A future without music? No, we will sing in the kingdom of God. We will build, we will grow, we will learn, we will eat and drink in the kingdom of God. We will dance in the kingdom of God. Joni Erickson Tata is a woman who has a story to tell. She had a diving accident when she was a teenager. She was beautiful, popular, athletic, brilliant. She had it all. She was going places. But this diving accident left her a quadriplegic for more than 50 years. Her autobiography is one of the most powerful things you could read. In it, she says, I can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled fingers, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Light, bright, and clothed in righteousness. Powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone with a spinal cord injury like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has MS? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, she writes, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And she goes on, and I, I love this. She says, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I would like to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice, I will be walking. And then I'll say, Jesus, you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we will have trouble because that wheelchair represents a lot of trouble for me. But the weaker I got in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the more I found your strength. So I thank you and praise you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, and now could you please send that wheelchair to hell? 
Paul says, if the spirit that raised Christ is in you, God will give you eternal life in your mortal body. What are the implications of this? They're huge. I'll give you just two of them quickly. First of all, Christian friends. You know what this means? It means God likes the physical. One of my favorite movies is Babette's Feast, where there's a group of well-meaning Christians who are actually afraid of physical things and of pleasure. They wear nasty clothes. They don't eat nice things. They live these narrow, pinched lives because they feel it's unspiritual to have any kind of pleasure. And they take in a French woman who was in crisis. They help her during a time of incredible difficulty in her life. And it turns out she's this world-class chef. And she says she wants to show them her gratitude by making them this tremendous feast. And they all sit down. All the food is brought in from all over Europe. She, she gets an inheritance. She blows it all on these people. They sit down for this feast, and it's the best food they've ever tasted, and they hate it. The message is, if you can't enjoy a good feast, you're not ready for God's future. We will eat and drink. We will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God invented the physical, and he became physical to redeem us. The Bible doesn't say just save their souls. It doesn't matter if they're hungry. That's been an accusation lobbed at Christianity, right, by Marxists and others that religion is the opioid of the masses, puts us to sleep. But no, Christianity in truth is a fighting religion because when you see hunger and when you see disease and when you see pain, you know God hates it. He died to deal with it. God wants to redeem it, and if you're following Jesus, you will too. So the physical is important. We minister in word and deed. We're not afraid of the physical, not trying to escape it. If we do, we'll never get anywhere because God says that at the end of time, my glory is a redeemed body and soul. Second implication, those of you who don't know what you believe today, maybe you're not a Christian at all, maybe this is all strange to you, hard to wrap your head around. I'm inviting you to consider that something is going on underneath the surface appearance of life. Underneath all the competition and conflict we see, which is a desire to win new recognition, that underneath all the diets we subject ourselves to, which are desires for new bodies, that underneath all the makeup we buy, which is a desire for a new face, new skin, that underneath all the dating apps, all the loneliness, which is a desire for connection, for a new love, underneath the materialism of always buying new things, underneath the desire for change and new experience. In your heart, look at all of it. Underneath it is a hunger for the eternity of God. Do you see that? It's a hunger for renewal and newness. You look at life and you see how much is broken. You see everything decaying and even dying. And you know that you're not built for a place like this. You're built, you're designed, your purpose is to be where things get stronger and better by the minute, not weaker and more decrepit. And Paul says... 
Through Jesus Christ, there is a realm, there is a new reality in which every minute things do get stronger and better and richer and deeper. A new heaven and a new earth. Every minute they become newer and newer, more absorbing, more vivid, more coherent, more connected, more complete than ever. Full, forever. How can you get that kind of hope if you're not there right now? Well, go and learn what this means. As we read, Christ died for my sins according to the scripture, and he was raised again that we may have newness of life. Go and find what that means. Read the Bible. Pray a simple prayer. God, if you're real, show me yourself. And join us as we do that as a community of faith here at Courtright. And God promises to give you that hope and to bring something new and beautiful and enduring into your lives and to all of our lives through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with your hope? With those of us who have that hope, do whatever it takes to fan it into new life. And for those of us who don't have that hope, I pray that you will plant it in them. Father, you as a gardener plant this hope within us. Only you can do that. And this is a hope that endures through any suffering. This is a hope that leads to you and to your love, which endures forever. Thank you for your son. Amen.